we didn't really want to raise outside capital. And so we were funding the business off of its own revenues. So we didn't have this big performance marketing budget. We, we couldn't blow 20, 30, 100 grand on Facebook ads or Google ads. And a lot of times like companies will raise a bunch of venture capital. And then I think studies have shown that like 60 or 70% of that venture capital goes right back to Google and Facebook and Amazon. So we didn't want to fall into that trap. We knew we needed to like play the long game and we needed to build uh, the type of property that organically acquired traffic and organically acquired the eyeballs for people who were looking for this service. Welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. My name is Lisa Beyer and I'll be your host. My guest today is landscape business owner turned mobile app developer and entrepreneur. His name is Brian Clayton. And we're going to talk about how he went from starting the landscape business, selling the landscape business, and identifying the inefficiencies of running a lawn and landscape business to creating um, a marketplace called GreenPow and put where it's bringing together homeowners with lawn care maintenance associates. And we're going to talk about how he primarily used, I should say, only used, exclusively used PR and SEO to grow his business to what it is today, where they are serving over 200,000 users across the United States, where they're matching homeowners with lawn care maintenance associates. Welcome, Brian, and I hope you enjoy his story on how he grew his business using PR and SEO as much as I did. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. I'm here with Brian Clayton with GreenPal. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Very good. Well, GreenPal is right up my alley. I'm. We have one of our clients that is a software technology company in the landscape industry. So when I saw GreenPal, I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun to talk about talking to somebody in the landscape industry, the lawn care industry. So Brian, will you just share with us how you how GreenPal came about and a little bit of your background? Yeah. So GreenPal in one sentence is kind of like the Uber for lawn mowing. So if you're a homeowner and you need to get this chore done, you need to get your grass cut rather than calling all over Craigslist or Yelp or Facebook or just dialing for dollars, you can just download our app. And within a minute, you'll get four or five quotes back from local lawn care services that are interested in mowing your yard for you. You can hire them right off the app. They come out and do the job. You approve it. And then if everything went well, you can book them for the whole season right on the app. And so it's kind of like an end-to-end experience, the Uber for lawn mowing. I've been at this business for eight years. My two co-founders and I were uh, were an eight-year overnight success. We started off very humbly trying to figure out how to build this marketplace, how to get this app going. And now here we are in eight year, year eight year nine, two or 300,000 homeowners using the app, doing around $20 million a year in revenue uh, for grass cutting. And so now, now we've got a good marketplace going, but it was really tough to, to get the business going from scratch. Before GreenPal, I actually had a landscaping company. I, I, I started cutting grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And over a 15-year period of time, built one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live, got it over 150 employees, over $10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, the business was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. So after that, I kind of retired, got bored. The idea for GreenPal was kind of solving my own problem and recruited two co-founders and went to work. 
I love it. I love it. And I love hearing stories of disruption in an industry where, you know, and I think the landscape industry is one of those industries that similar to maybe real estate and attorneys that it's just very archaic in some ways. So there's huge opportunity to turn it upside down and make, make it more efficient. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the idea of disruption somewhat indicates that, so, that like somebody's winning and somebody's losing, like in the case for, for Uber, like, you know, taxis lost out big when, when Uber came and disrupted the, the taxi industry. For us, we don't, we really don't look at it as, as the same way because really nobody loses in our model. Homeowners just need a good lawn mowing service to come cut their grass. And these smaller service providers that don't have a marketing budget, don't have any way to get exposed, can just plug into our platform and market their services on top of our platform. And so it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Homeowner wins, the service provider wins. And, and, and if we do everything, if we do our job, GreenPal wins. And so that's what we've been doing. You know, we've just been working on chewing our way through this really fragmented marketplace and just making it run a lot smoother. Yeah. Fragmented marketplace. Definitely. That is, and it, it does have the opportunity. So how did you get the word out when you first started and had this idea to launch the, the app and connect the, the homeowners with the, the professionals? Yeah. So when we, we launched in the summer of 2013, we, we actually paid a development shop to build the first version of GreenPal because we didn't know how to code. And that was a total disaster. It didn't work out. We ended up having to rebuild, rebuild the whole thing from scratch ourselves, but we did have a product to launch. And so we had no user acquisition strategy, no, no way to get the word out. And so we, we just did the only thing we knew how to do was pass out door flyers, door hangers. And so we stomped all over Nashville, Tennessee, all over middle Tennessee, where we live and passed out like 200,000 of these things over a couple of months and got a few hundred users to use the, the app. And we were able to meet with them and get their feedback if we were on the right track or not, if we were building something that they would pay to use, if if we were actually solving a problem that, that somebody needed solved. And, and it took a while, but we were able to get the feedback to understand how to build the second version. And along the lines of that, along of the, those customer interviews, we were able to discern that a lot of times when you need a grass cutting service and you don't know anybody, you've exhausted recommendations from friends and family, et cetera, you just go to Google and you just type in lawn care service near me or lawn care service, Wichita, Kansas, whatever. And then, then you look through the results and then you still have to go through the exercise of polling through these people and like leaving voicemails. We knew if we could just go from like searching on Google to push a button, get it done, that we would have a, a chance at building something successful. And so we just focused everything after that, you know, effort of passing out door hangers, we focused everything on organic search really in the early days and became to understand really early that it was kind of a bet the company decision that it was, it, it's just really, really, really arduous and, and, and challenging to compete in organic search results. But we, we started to put all of our weight into that. And here we are eight years later, we still get half of our, of our users through, through just through Google organic search. I love hearing that. And, you know, part of what I consider PR is SEO and the two are equate to earned media. So I love hearing stories where, you know, in one hand you used old school tactics, like, you know, just hitting the ground running literally and going door to door with the door hangers. And then on the other hand, you're not just going out looking for immediate gratification using ads, digital advertising, and you're actually investing in the organic side because I mean, studies show that the organic search is going to be your most valuable traffic and your most qualified user with intent, right? So if you could kind of talk through, you know, how you knew to do that or, or why you did that and some tips maybe in how you still are able to, you know, 
stay within page one of Google and why the Google searches are so important to at, at the end of the day for you? Yeah, so for us, it was it was almost like necessity is the mother of invention. We were bootstrapping the business. We didn't really want to raise outside capital. And so we were funding the business off of its own revenues. So we didn't have this big performance marketing budget. We, we couldn't blow 20, 30, 100 grand on Facebook ads or Google ads. And a lot of times, like companies will raise a bunch of venture capital. And then I think studies have shown that like 60 or 70% of that venture capital goes right back to Google and Facebook and Amazon. It's just, it's almost sure. comical. Yeah. And so we didn't want to fall into that trap. We knew we needed to like play the long game and we needed to build uh, the type of property that organically acquired traffic and organically acquired the eyeballs for people who were looking for this service. And so we kind of just slowly began to peel away the layers of the onion of SEO and trying to figure out what we could do. And and for us, like what got us through the, the first three, four years was that we only operated just in Nashville, Tennessee. And that focus just in our own backyard enabled us to figure out how to rank for keywords like, I need a lawn mowing service in, in Nashville. I need an affordable grass cutting service in, in Brentwood, Tennessee, looking for a yard maintenance company in East Nashville. Like these key phrases that, that line up with somebody who really just has grass that's four feet tall and needs somebody to come out and mow it. We, we really just start experimenting over and over and over again on how we could, could compete and rank for these keywords. And a lot of the, the tactics that we use then are still the things we do today is it's, we just build the, we just create the best content for the, those key phrases. And so like, what we do is part of our just natural like process of running the platform is when a new vendor signs up on our platform, we create the best content about that business. So if you have a lawn mowing service in East Nashville, you know, we write a bio about you. We interview you. We take pictures of, of your work. We, we try to figure out what differentiates you from the competition and what neighborhoods you service and where you went to high school and what your hobbies are and where you like to eat lunch and all these things like are like local content about that that landscaping contractor that really is the best content on the web. And so that's how we, we invest in that content at a local level. And we were able to repeat that. Now we're in every major city now, but, but like the tactics then are really still the same tactics today in terms of creating the content that, that helps users get hooked up with what they need, which is a great lawn mowing service. Exactly. What other types of content besides, I love the idea of featuring each one of your contractors. That's amazing. And that's going to, you know, they're going to be proud of that, that they have this feature story on your website. So what other types of content do you use or do you recommend that's working? Yeah. So for us, you know, there's, there's two different ways you can look at content. It's like, what can you, you have to create content that is tied to some sort of economic objective. And so for us creating these, these bios and, and this, all this rich information about these local landscaping contractors, it doesn't exist anywhere on the web. And so like that is tied to somebody who needs a lawn mowing service in that neighborhood. And so you go from, I don't, I need somebody to, Oh, look at this content. Oh, I can hire them right now. Credit card. They came out and mowed went great, booked them for the whole season. That's where content comes into that equation. Love it. But you can't only do just that because that content really sucks for links. Like nobody wants to link to that. And so as part of the SEO, you got to, you got to develop, develop a, an authoritative domain. And so, you know, it takes a long time. You really have to take the long view on it. I equate it to dieting. Like I, I, I literally like, I'm, I'm always like trying to watch my calorie intake. And like, if you have 40 pounds to lose, like the first two months is going to be an exercise of faith. And like the first two years of SEO is kind of like that. So you're doing all of these things and you're not really getting any immediate result. 
And so for me, you know, I knew that long-term it would work. And, you know, I, cause I was just kind of pouring over every SEO blog I could, every YouTube channel I could to try to learn how to do this stuff. And we just took the long, the long view and just kept doing with the things we needed to do. And so as it relates to content, you have to like create really good content that will earn links and that you know, a lot of those things maybe might be how-to content, like, you know, how to get rid of ants in my garden, how to, what is, when is the best time of day to cut my grass, what, how to create a, a, a landscape that will attract butterflies, like all of this how-to content, like, like if somebody's looking for a landscaping, looking for advice on how to create a landscape that attracts butterflies, they're probably not going to sign up for grass cutting quotes on our platform. Like there's, there is no like end to end, like content marketing driving sales way to close the loop on that. But if you take, if you, if you create that really good content over a long period of time or, you know, in the long run, the, these, these pieces generate links, people, other bloggers link to them, maybe, maybe the local home and garden news, you know, section of the newspaper links to it. You know, there is like a, you know, a strategy in terms of doing proactive outreach around these things. And we do that too. So you kind of have to play that game if you're going to be in the organic search game. The other, the other way that we drive authority for our domain is through a, a kind of a PR strategy. So one of my co-founders, all he's done for the last seven years is PR. That's it. Uh, mon- Monday through Saturday, six days a week, PR. He's always reaching out to journalists. He's always talking to journalists, pitching them on stories uh, about, hey, Green Pal's coming to town or Green Pal's helping small businesses get through COVID or Green Pal's helping minority businesses or Green Pal's helping female-led businesses. And, and getting these stories placed in local media moves people to the platform and also uh, most of the time requires uh, uh, acquire some sort of backlink from that authoritative news outlet that then raises our authority just a little bit. So doing all of these things and, and like having the faith that they work for a very long time has enabled us to kind of compete and, and, and acquire the traffic to then tee up to our vendor partners so they can get what they want, homeowners get what they want, and we take a little piece of the pie. I love it. I love hearing that you're combining the superpowers of SEO and PR and, you know, going both directions. And also how is social media fitting into your marketing strategy and how are you leveraging social? Social is not a big piece for us. We, 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 we play in it by default. So we, we dabble, we, we don't do any sort of paid marketing just because the unit economics don't, doesn't add up for us. Like we can't afford to pay. We don't, we don't take the entire piece of the transaction, right? We only take a, a, a small chunk of it depending on the, the context, but so, so we can't afford to pay $200 to acquire a homeowner off of Facebook or off of Instagram or off of, you name it, Reddit, Twitter, whatever. And so for, for us, you know, we, we have a presence in social media almost just out of uh, obligation. But for me, I think when you're in a startup, particularly if you're bootstrapped, focus is everything. And you have to lean in and focus on one channel because you're not going to be good at multiple channels if you're, if you're just getting started. Now, if you got like, you know, if you're doing 10, 20, you know, if you're doing a hundred million dollars in revenue and, and you got a billion dollar business, then yeah, you, you've got a, you got a robust strategy for all these different channels. But if you're just getting something going from like zero to one, you got to focus everything you got on one channel and then just lean into that channel. I think a lot of uh, startups that I coach, I do coaching and mentoring for, for entrepreneurs as a hobby for free, for fun. And the thing I see a lot of them do is just try to like sprinkle all of their bandwidth resources and time into all of these different channels. And then they, they don't move the needle on any of them. And the thing I always try to help them course correct is like just experiment in all of them, figure out what's working and then just go all in on one for like five years and then worry about the other ones. Definitely. Hello. Oh, wait, is this thing on? Hi, it's Lisa Beyer. I just wanted to tell you really quick, I'm launching a course called 
Modern PR Secrets, and I wanted you to be the first to know. You can check it out at thebuyergroup.com under resources. Now let's get back to this interview. So if you had to pick one channel, what's your favorite social channel for GreenPow that most of your audience would be on? So the experience I have... I mean, we, so for instance, we, we do leverage social in a couple ways. We have, we, like all of our suppliers, vendors, landscaping professionals that use our platform, there's like 10,000 of them. We have a Facebook group that, that they all participate in for like advice on how to use GreenPow or tips on how to grow their lawn mowing business, et cetera. And like, that has been huge for us because it's really sticky. The conversation's going on all the time. Everybody's there, like really big thing. And so, and so Facebook, like if, if, if I had to pick one that would not go away tomorrow, it'd be Facebook. That said, like we have an Instagram account with like 30,000 followers and we just post memes and funny stuff about the lawn care industry <laughs> and guys follow that gals follow, follow that they're in the business and like they comment on it. Can I connect the dots on any of those efforts to any sales objectives? No, but it's just good. It's just good. Like branding PR, maybe there's some top of the funnel there, but so, so Facebook is my favorite because of groups. And I think Facebook groups is a big untapped opportunity. I was listening to a podcast the other day with this, this guy who founded a, a, a marketplace that connects people who are looking for roommates. And all they did was spend like five years building up Facebook groups. And so like they built their own Facebook group for like St. Louis for like a hundred thousand people. And it's like once a day or once a week, they just kind of like inject their, their platform into the conversation. So it's like free marketing, like talk about taking a long view on, on a channel that's taken the long view. Yeah, um, definitely. So I love Facebook groups because of the utility, because of the retention, the stickiness, the, the way to drive the conversation all the time with your, your customers or your users. Like it's huge. It's been hugely beneficial for us. I love it. I love interviewing guests who are believers in PR and SEO. So you are definitely on the top of my list for interviews <laughs> because a lot of times, I mean, I, I believe in all aspects of digital marketing. You know, I'm, a PR girl, but that believes in the ad world as well. But it, it's it's very it's very annoying to me to talk to brands or marketing managers that really say, "Oh yeah, I believe in SEO and PR," but they don't have a budget for it. And meanwhile, they're spending you know 200k a month on on Facebook ads, you know, but they don't have a budget for PR. And it's just like you guys look, you you, you this isn't you're going to turn off your ad campaigns and then it's going to be nothing cricket. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's multiple paths to success. You know, if you're wish.com or booking.com, like those guys have figured out performance marketing and they know, they know better than anybody how to compete in those channels. And they probably, you know, wish probably doesn't give a crap about PR, but, but the thing is, is like, that's a bad bet for most startups and most businesses. And, and I think performance marketing, you know, I put in a hundred dollars and I hope to at least get a hundred dollars back in a year. I think that's good for something that's already working. And then like, that can be the cherry on top, but to go from like zero to one. And it's like, you're just only, you only have enough fuel in the tank. I, I think can, can get you into a trap where if you run out of money or you can't raise the next round of funding, then it's, this lights out. And then you just, you know, you just wasted three years of your life you know, basically taking investor dollars and giving them back to Google and Facebook. It can work. I've seen it work, but it doesn't work most more times than not. 
Yeah, definitely. I liked what you said earlier about looking at SEO like it's a diet. Um, actually, one of my friends wrote a book called The SEO Diet that I'll send you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> because that's his um, analogy as well. And it's a great analogy. But speaking of diet, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about how business owners can you know, stay fit, stay mentally fit, stay physically fit. What are some tips that you can offer business owners or just professionals in general, You know, some secrets to that? Yeah, I love the SEO diet analogy. It's like mm-hmm. discipline, consistency, faith, research, doing the right things day in, day out for a very long time, you'll success in dieting and SEO. So for, for me, like, you know, the first, for, I don't know, three, four years of starting GreenPal were really, 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 really tough. My two co-founders and I were seven days a week, 70, 80 hours a week minimum. And there wasn't any time for fitness or diet. And like those these things slowly like got ignored and neglected and I woke up one day and I was I was like 280 pounds almost 300 pounds and I hadn't shaved in probably two months I just looked bad I felt bad and I was like man something's got to give because because I just feel like crap and I look like crap and I had just broken up with my girlfriend so there was that too and it was it was like I was not I was not I was not crisp I was not sharp and so my co-founder is actually was like, you know, I'm going to sign up for a marathon and that's like in four months, you know, we should do it together. And I, and I had never ran more than maybe a mile. And, uh, and so I thought, well, what the hell, what the hell? And so I did, and we, and we, we, long story short, we did it. But as I was, as I was training for the marathon, I lost like 40 pounds, which was great. I needed to, I needed that jump start. but then there were a lot of parallel parallels between like marathon training and, and business and that, that made a lot of sense. You know, again, the consistency, again, like the diligence and the faith, but also like, like momentum, you know, you, you, you see these crazy runners like on the side of the street and at an intersection, you know, they're waiting for the light to change and they're still jogging in place. And what they realize, you know, you don't realize until you train for a marathon that it's actually harder on your body hurts more to like stop and then start again, particularly when you're on like mile 15, 16 or 17 and everything just hurts. It, it hurts less to just sit there and jog in place and then wait for the light to change and then go. And like that, that just little thing to me was eye opening in terms of, 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 of how it's so true in business also, like just focus on what the two or three things you can do at any given time, keep momentum going on them. Don't get stuck. Don't stop don't give up certainly and just keep moving and keeping progress on a few things that are inside your little circle of influence. And you do that long enough, you'll, you'll achieve results. I love that. I love that. So are you still running marathons? I, I learned after my third marathon, I did three of them, one a year for three years and I, and I got the weight off. I started to realize, wow, you know, I don't really need to run that much now to maintain. And so now I do, I do halves, which are good. Like I just not, I'm not cut out for, for, 26 miles, but I do a lot of halves. And then I found, I found like hit workouts, just, you know, getting into like a Barry's boot camp or, or something similar for, for 60 minutes helps me keep the fat off, keep the energy going. Like, like if I, if, if I have that commitment to be, be there at 6am and I do that, well then by 7am, then I have a better energy level throughout the whole entire day versus if I just, if I slept in until 730. And so it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. You would think you should be exhausted because you just like gave it all for an hour in the morning, but actually you have a better, you have better energy throughout the day. And so while I hate every second of it, Mm -hmm. I have figured out ways to put trip wires in front of me 
to where I have to do it. So it's like one of the things I love about ClassPass is that if you book a, uh, a Barry's boot camp on ClassPass and you don't show up, they they ping your credit card for 20 bucks. And so, and so you have to be there. And then, or if I sign up for a half marathon and I've made the commitment that I need to be able to run 13 miles, like the training kind of takes care of itself. So making these commitments and putting these trip wires in front of you and in, in fitness and in business is kind of one thing I've, I've done to help keep me on track. What are some other things that you do for stress management, having your own business and just living through like the past year of the pandemic? What are some other things that you're doing to keep yourself balanced? Thank God meditation's gotten really mainstream and, and commonplace over the last uh, 10 years, or else I might not have, have ever had access to it. You know, I tried meditation maybe six, seven years ago. Yeah, I thought, I don't really see it. And then, and then people kept, you kept seeing it everywhere and people kept referring it, re- recommending it. And, and then I read a quote somewhere that like all, most like hugely successful people have three things. They have a therapist, they have a coach, and they meditate. And I thought, well, I don't have any of those three, but I can at least meditate. I don't really want a therapist and, and I don't have a coach, but I can at least meditate. And, and so I did, I started doing it, downloaded the Calm app and just stayed, you know, again, stayed consistent, made like a hundred day commitment and it just stuck. And I noticed that I was just getting less irritated and pissed off about things that were little. And I started thinking a little bit slower, which was good. I noticed some, some things in my day to day that were like getting better. And I thought, well, okay, this is, this is, this is worth the investment. And then the other thing that happened was I took a two month trip all through Australia and Asia and I, and I, and I got off my discipline. I didn't meditate. And then I started noticing like some regression on these things, which further reinforced that like, okay, just 10, 15 minutes a day after you work out in the morning, do the meditation. And that, that helps me. That helps me like kind of just stay, stay, stay clear, have a clear mind and, and focused. It's not like a huge immediate thing, but it's, but again, like dieting over the long term, it works. I love that. Yeah. I just also learned um, how important nature is to just your mental health and, and kind of clearing the mind and staying balanced, even like just going outside and taking a 15 minute walk, like kind of, you know, through, you know, a tree lined street is better than just taking a walk, like maybe just inside a gym and where you're not outside. It's it's so true. And and I wish that I was just naturally gravitated to do all these things. I wish that like, I, you know, would drive 15 minutes, go take a hike or, but it's like one of my favorite quotes is, is a Mark Twain quote. And he says, I hate writing, but I love have having written. <laughs> so like I, like I hate doing the, like getting started on all these things. Like, like, I don't want to do outreach for blog posts. I don't want to, I don't want to follow my calorie intake every day. I don't really want to go outside and meditate. But once after I did it, then I'm glad that I did it. And so it's almost like a universal principle in life. Like a lot of these things you, you're, you're resistant to do, but you're glad after they're done. And if you can just kind of constantly keep that in your mind, it helps you stay on track with them. I love that. I love that. Do you have any books? Speaking of, you've, you've given us a couple of quotes, any books that you recommend that are entrepreneurial or just motivating? You know, some of my favorite books, I think, again, you know, you got to read, you know, I try to read a book a month and it's not like a huge goal, but it keeps me on track to read, you know, 10, 20, 50 pages a day. And so for me, some of my favorite books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I think that's, that's a, like the holy Bible of, of just kind of changing your mindset and how you interact with people and how you think about prioritization and how you think about how you, what you want to do with your life like that, that book I try to read every year or two. 
and even if I just listen to it on Audible, that that really helps me. So that's a more of like a big picture book. And then maybe on the other end of the scale, like focusing in on something more tactical, like the four hour work week is one of my favorite books. Like that book is not about being lazy and only working four hours a week. That book is about like, how do you develop systems and processes so you can delegate to people to where you can be more effective and more high leverage. And so I could go, I got a hundred more books I could recommend, but those are two of my favorite that are kind of like one's big picture and, and the other one's more tactical. Yeah. I love the four hour work week. I think I'm going to actually have my daughter read that she's 18 and in college. And I think that might be like a great, like kind of like time management. Like here's a big picture of like how you can like hack through things, not hack through, but be efficient with systems. Yeah. If you can get her to to read that and then, and then read, uh, you know, rich dad, poor dad, and maybe even seven habits. And those are like three books that you can like reread every three or four years. Like I think in business, if you're doing it right, you should completely be a different person every five years. Yes. And, and so then you revisit a lot of these books and you see them differently, which is kind of cool. I mean, like, like that's how it's been for me for 20 years. And so as you are growing, you, you know, a lot of people say like, like, they'll say that about the Bible or something like, like you, you go back to it and it means something completely different. Well, like a lot of these books are kind of the same way in terms of as you are evolving in your business journey, you'll look at them totally different, particularly seven habits of highly effective people. Like that book takes on a whole new meaning every time I revisit it. Yes, totally. So speaking of five years, where do you see yourself in five years? What's the big picture for Green Pal? Yeah. So we've, we're eight years in, you know, and like the Jeff Bezos quote is still day one. Like it just feels that way. You know, we, we have so much further to go. We're luckily we're profitable. We got a good team, you know, 20, 24 people. Most of them are smarter than me, which is fun. And, and so it's like, it's still day one. We have so much further to go. We're, we're doing, we're doing multiple eight figures in revenue, but it's a $99 billion industry. And, and it's not going to be like a winner take all thing. And so there's a whole lot more opportunity for us to grow and expand in terms of like putting this app into people's hands as the default way you get this done until it's like in the same conversation as a Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb in terms of, yeah, you just do this with that. Then we're not done. We got a long way to go. Well, I'm excited to hear what the next chapter is going to be and besides green pal and you mentioned calm any other favorite apps that you have oh we i love upwork.com that is like uh you know we I got 20, 23 people that work for, work for me but i also got another i don't know 30 contractors on upwork that help us get a lot of stuff done their app is is really good and so like you know i mentioned that i i, I do a lot of traveling and so i can it's just insane how, how much I can get done from the palm of my hand. It's just crazy these days. And so like Upwork, love, I love Trello. I love, I mean, let's look at my home screen right now. I love Intercom. Like we, 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 we talk to all of our users through, through intercom.com. I love, I, I mean, everything from like Google Sheets, Google Docs. I got Google Analytics on my phone, a mix panel on my phone. Like these are, these are the apps on my home screen. Marvel for product, product design. Like every one of these apps, every one of these platforms has an app to where you can do damn near 90% of everything from the, from your smartphone. So it's like, it doesn't matter if I'm traveling, I can run a team of 23 people from anywhere in the world that I have, I have an internet connection. I mean, what a time to be alive. Yes. Yes. You are dialed in. Brian, thank you so much. You've shared so much, so many secrets with us that I can't wait for our audience to hear. And I would love to have you back on and just be a regular guest and keep sharing all of these wins that you're having, especially with PR and SEO. Hey, I really appreciate it. I would love to. Thank you for having me on. I had a ball. All right. Awesome. Namaste. 
listening to this episode of Social PR Secrets. If you like what you heard, check out the book on Amazon or follow our blog at socialprsecrets.com. This episode was sponsored by The Buyer Group, a social PR agency striving to keep our balance in the digital world, practicing public relations, social media, and search marketing, while occasionally drinking a glass of wine or two for the best creativity and results. Thank you all for tuning in. If you would like to get a free chapter of Social PR Secrets, go to socialprsecrets.com slash free.